Well, this morning's sermon is entitled, The Myth That Became Fact. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to 1 Corinthians 15. And 1 Corinthians 15, 12 through 34 is going to be our passage this morning. But go ahead and hold your place there. And I promise we will get there. Let's pray this morning. Father, as we come to your word for this moment to understand your word, to have your word interpret correctly for us what it means to be human, what it means to worship God, to give ourselves over to you and to obey your word, Lord, that may be our intent, but the Holy Spirit is the resource whom you've given to us to empower us to live it out. And so this is uniquely the moment of the Holy Spirit every week where we ask that the Holy Spirit give life to dead hearts and give ears to hear not just the audible voice, Lord, but give the ears of the heart the ability to hear the message and to make the decision to follow Jesus. Do your work, Holy Spirit. Amen. C.S. Lewis was famous, or is famously known to have said that Christianity is the myth that became fact. What did he mean by this? Christians will sometimes defend Christianity by saying that Christianity's not a myth, it's the truth. They'll say Christianity's not a myth, it's the truth. And we should understand what they're saying. Uh, what they're saying is that the opposite of truth is myth. And I understand the heart where that phrase comes from, but I want to challenge the meaning of that phrase this morning, and I want to give you a better understanding of just what myth is and how we are to understand the myth of the Bible. I ask you not to get ahead of me this morning and to allow me to explain what I mean the dilemma is false. To say that Christianity is not myth is true is a false dilemma which is based upon the incorrect understanding of the word or the meaning of the word myth. We, in modern parlance, have come to understand the word myth as a falsehood, as an untruth. But the word myth in a technical sense, in a very scholarly sense, means something different than falsehood. Lewis was, of course, greatly familiar with the world's literature and the genre of myth. He taught ancient mythology at Oxford and, of course, never received a chair there because of his Christian beliefs. 
Later on, he would receive a chair of ancient mythology, ancient literature, and world, uh, ancient pagan religion at Cambridge. But Lewis was greatly familiar with the literary genre of myth, and he knew that myth, in its truest sense, is always understood as truth, even if it is not factual. The Aborigine, who performs a rain dance to his god of rain, is certainly not going to get rain through the rain dance. We know, post-scientific revolution, that it's heat and humidity leading to condensed water vapor that ascends into the atmosphere. And when clouds become so heavy with the weight from water vapor, gravity acts on that water vapor and it pulls it down and we call that rain. And we understand scientifically that that's how rain comes. And so today we have a tendency to say that because we know scientifically that that's how rain comes, that what the rain dance is doing is false, the man who performs the rain dance. Now certainly I'm not endorsing you to go and do a rain dance this morning. Nevertheless, the dichotomy is a false dichotomy. Because there is some truth to the rain dance. Though not factually correct. The rain dance depicts the truth that man's provisions come from above. None of us can do anything this morning to make it rain. Despite what your favorite rap artist says. We can't make it rain. We don't have that control. We are completely impotent insofar as producing weather patterns. Nevertheless, we understand that there is still a need for this rain. It's a basic part of life. It's going to, it's going to irrigate our crops. It's going to help our crops grow. It's going to give us water supply. And we need it. And so we depend on it. And we depend on whoever is in charge of that to bring us that water. And so whether it's a rain dance or whether it's a sacrifice offered or a prayer, all of those stories, while not necessarily factual, all show to us a truth or reveal to the world a truth, namely that human beings are dependent upon a supernatural source for their lives or for all of life's provisions. That is true. It was Lewis who said, many today are saying that England is lapsing into paganism. He said, would that that were the truth. It is the pagan who is closer to God than the modern man who has rejected any story of the possibility of supernatural beings. History has proven that the pagan has been easier to convert than the modern man with all of his science, with all of his learning, and has thrown away the truth of myth. 
myths are the stories, though not necessarily factual stories, which shape our culture, our beliefs, our morals, and our society at large. We love the story of the Boston Tea Party. We, we, we remember the story that the settlers, the British settlers, dressed up in Native American garb and threw the tea over the side in the Boston Harbor. It was that moment where the Americans were saying to the British, we're different than you. We are a new nation. We are a different nation than you. And we, we remember that. And it's a, a myth. We remember the stories of Paul Revere. And there's so many stories in our history as Americans that have a mix between fact and myth. But there is nevertheless that, that element that shapes our mindset as Americans and what it means to be Americans. And in that sense, there is real truth for us. As such, Lewis saw those elements of myth, those elements which gave to the Christian church culture, belief, morals, and how society ought to be. He saw all of those elements in Christianity. And as such, Lewis understood Christianity as myth. As one of the many great myths of the world and of human history. The stories that speak to us, that give us what it means to be human and try to explain where we came from, where we are going, what is the meaning of life. Lewis said, Christianity answers all of this. But it is so much more than myth. Christianity asserts to give true meaning to all these things, with the exception that its followers have proclaimed that the stories or the myths that make up the story of Christianity are real historical events that happen in space and in time. The ancient Babylonians, Greeks, Romans, and Egyptians have similar mythic stories which shape their cultures with the exception that their followers weren't as concerned with their historical reliability. I've already seen, I was at the gym this week. I know that's hard to believe, but I go to the gym. I don't do any exercise there, but I do go. I just stand around the weights. I like to eat food while I'm at the gym. It makes everybody intimidated. But I was at the gym and I was working on the elliptical and... Uh, I put on my headphones and um, I'm, I'm watching TV and I see CNN's got a, it, it, I tell you this, it happens every year, but around the Christian holidays, you'll see these uh, commercials for um, documentaries on Christianity. And it was Jesus, it was the question of fact or myth or uh, um, the, the, other, the last word was so scandalous, it was like forgery. That's what it was. Faith, fact, and forgery. That's what it was called. 
And I saw that, and I thought to myself, I know where this is going to go. I bet if you watch it, you'll see that it goes here. Take me up on this. I promise you it'll end up here. It'll end up here with this. The conclusion of the movie will go something like this. It will say, Jesus really did live. He really was an awesome person. He was an amazing guy. He did amazing things, but he wasn't supernatural. We know that now. He didn't do any of those things. He never claimed to be God. He never died on. He did die on a cross, but it, it, it wasn't for your sins. He died because he broke the law, and he never rose from the dead, and we think we have a guy who knows where his tomb is. That's how it's going to go. Guaranteed. Mark my word. Because Satan knows that if you separate the story of Christianity from the historical reality or the historical reality from the story of Christianity, that not only do you lose the true meaning of what Christianity is, but you lose all hope in ultimate meaning and really the forgiveness of sins. It was Paul who understood this. Christians since the very beginning have understood that if there was no historical Christ, no real virgin conception, no real crucifixion and resurrection, that all of what we are doing is in vain, is pointless. And ultimately has no real meaning whatsoever. The Christian myth, according to Lewis, is therefore everything that a myth is, yet so much more. God is more than the gods of Greek. He's not less. God is more than the gods of Rome. He is not less. All of the stories of, of the gods of Greek and Babylon and Rome, we understand that they're not factual, but understand them the way that the people understood them, that they still revealed true meaning. And while they revealed true meaning, they didn't reveal ultimate re meaning. And furthermore, while they were not factual, Christ really is. This is what Lewis said. He said, Christ is more than Balder, not less. He is more than Zeus, not less. Myth and reality are brought together in the Christian faith. In other words, look at myth in this way. Ever since the fall, the curse of the fall was not hard work. The main curse of the fall was separation from God. And to be separated from God is to lose the very foundation of all meaning. Without God, there is no meaning in life. It was Nietzsche, the nihilist, who understood that if you get rid of God, you unchain meaning from its axis. There is no up or down, no right or left, no back or forward anymore. God is the basis. And when man was cursed and sent 
out of Eden, he was separated from God and left to his own devices to try and make sense of who he was in this world. And so appreciate what the Babylonians did. Appreciate what the Greeks did. Don't feel like you can't read the Greek myths. Read them. Pity them. They were trying to find meaning for why they were here, where they came from. The Epic of Gilgamesh has, and every single one, when I, when I studied religion at, at FIU, and, and that was what one of my uh, two majors was in, was religious studies. It was, of course, in a secular environment. But, but what they taught us was that all of these myths had similarities, including Christianity. And I was so opposed to the idea that Christianity was a myth. I, I, it, it's not a myth. But, but what Lewis taught me to do was to see Christianity as a myth, but so much more. It gave me sympathy and pity for those people who in their ancient civilizations, tried to figure out where did they come from? How, how did this world come about? Was matter already here and God formed it? Did, did God, uh, in, in one story, the Epic of Gilgamesh, did, did Marduk slay Tiamat and really take her skin and make the sky with it? I mean, where did the sky come from? And people were left to their own devices without revelation to understand what the world really is. Lewis says this. Myth and reality are brought together in the Christian faith. Perfect myth and perfect fact. Claiming not only our love and our obedience, but also our wonder and our delight. In other words, he's saying this. There are two extremes. There is the Christian who sees Christianity as simply a story. And I'm going to show you in just a moment. There is the Christian who sees Christianity as one of many different stories. Just like those. But just is the, the story they prefer to live by. There is the other extreme that sees Christianity as a Bible of facts, of do's and don'ts, right and wrongs. And the problem is that neither of those extremes are true. It is both. Christianity, says Lewis, it is both. Not only claim has a claim on our love and our perfect obedience, but also on our wonder and our delight. Addressed to the savage, the child, and the poet, and each one of us, no less than the moralist, the scholar, and the philosopher. This morning, I want to discuss the meaning of Christmas as myth that became fact. Well, let's look first at what myth is. Let's try and give a definition for it. Thank God that Oxford, which by the way, if you... If you look for a dictionary, buy an Oxford dictionary. You can have Merriam-Webster, but it's trash. Have Oxford and use the Oxford dictionary. But the Oxford dictionary actually has this as the definition of myth today. It is the primary definition of what myth is. A traditional story 
especially one concerning the early history of a people, or explaining some natural or social phenomenon, and typically involving supernatural beings or events, period. You'll note that nothing in there is said about fact or fiction. Because that's not ultimately what myth is. Myths are the stories that give human beings meaning and morality, reason and responsibility. We're familiar with the stories of Greek mythology. We know that Zeus is the god of thunder and lightning. He's the one who controls the elements with power and might. We know that Hades, Zeus's brother, controls the underworld and has the power over the afterlife. We know about gods like Poseidon and the god of the sea in whose hands exist all maritime fate. But we know, of course, as Christians, that these gods are not merely false gods, but they are also fictional gods. Not only are they not the true god of God, the true the true holy God who is high and lifted up, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, we also know that they're fictional. So that even if Zeus existed in reality, which we know he does not, but even if he did, he would never measure up to the holiness of God. But we know that not only does he not measure up, but that he doesn't exist. These gods are not real in any way. Nevertheless, the myths that they express, the stories that they teach, still express a true reality and reveal to us a longing for God deep down inside every human being. They show us that man's existence is contingent. That is to say that we didn't create ourselves, but our creation was derived from someone else. These myths teach that man's existence is fragile. That when you're in a boat and you're on the sea and the tempest comes, it shakes the whole boat. Remember that when Jesus' disciples were on the boat with him, the seas became unruly. But there's only one who could calm that. But the Greeks were afraid of Tempest as well. These teach that there's exception or the expectation of life after death. That there's an afterlife, a fear of it. These myths of Zeus and and, uh, Marduk and Gilgamesh, all of these stories teach that nature is itself contingent. That if nature is to exist, it had to be created We can read these myths and understand a sense of objective right and wrong. That there's really a a wrong way of doing things and a right way of doing things. These stories teach that the events of this world are never foregone conclusions insofar as human reason understands those conclusions to be. That is that at any moment God could swoop in or the gods could swoop in and overrule what ought to be the case. It was certainly those types of thoughts that led the 300 Spartans to defeat or at least to withhold the Persians from advancing upon the Peloponnesus. 
giving the Greeks one year, just 300 men who believed that God could intervene. And through the story, they believed that, that many of the fleet were, were attacked by Poseidon and that they were crump, crushed and, and, and that the, the thousands upon thousands of Persian warriors that were coming to overthrow the Greeks, that they would be crushed up by Poseidon's strength in the ocean and that they didn't have to fight as big an army as they thought they were going to fight. They understood that there was always the possibility of supernatural intervention. Even today when you watch the news and you see something awful happen. I remember on 9-11 it was Shepard Smith. I'm not sure if Shepard Smith is a believer. But it was Shepard Smith who said when the towers were on fire, November 11, 2001, he said, pray. Because everyone has a sense of our need that, that something beyond us has to intervene to stop this. We can't stop this. We're, we're powerless. And myth, myth tells us. But the greatest thing that myth gives to us is it shows the human desperation for a hero. We're going to go to the movies over Christmas break and we're going to go watch all of these movies. And the highest grossing movies right now are these Marvel movies. And those are the superhero movies for those of you who don't have a TV. For those of you who live under a rock. And we love it. And our kids, our little boys and our little girls want to dress up like these heroes. We love the story of the hero. And there's nothing more heroic to us. There is a sense of longing, a love, the goosebumps that we get when we see our hero do the thing we're not going to do. That we're too afraid to do. That we don't have the courage inside us to do. That our hero would give his life for us. To save the world. That longing is there. In these stories. And so these myths do express truth. Even if. They're not actual fact. These elements of myth. All exist within the Christian religion. Christianity tells the story of God. Tells us that the creation of the world came out of nothing. It was God who spoke it into existence. Tells us that the reason why there's evil and wickedness in the world, why there's death, is because man rebelled against God. It tells us that God began to redeem humanity. And that God will finally reconcile man with himself. Christianity reveals the meaning of life as the pursuit of God. That the reason why we're here is to love God and to enjoy Him. To glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. That's the meaning of life. If anyone ever asks you what's the meaning of life, say the meaning of life is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. That, that's the north on our compass for everything we should do as Christians. To glorify God, to bring glory to his name, to proclaim his name in what we do with our hands, what we say with our mouth, what we see with our eyes, 
what we build with our hands, to bring glory to Him and to enjoy Him. To enjoy God. To look at His creation. Oh, I saw one of the most beautiful things this week. My, my wife was with the kids and there was a storm and she went outside and there was a rainbow and she called the kids out and she, I wasn't there for this. She took a picture of it though. She saw the rainbow and she said, look at the rainbow. And Claire said to Stephanie, that's God's promise that he'll never flood the earth again. Isn't that beautiful? And then she got down on her knees. And she began to pray. And Stephanie heard her pray and she began to say, thank you God that you'll never flood the earth again. So Stephanie took a picture. We were all crying at dinner. Oh, that's childlike faith that's pleasing to the Lord. But she enjoys God. That's the meaning of why we're here. Christianity tells us that this is why we're here. The Word of God tells us. It reveals God in Christ Jesus as the hero of the world. The Savior. It tells of the epic battle at the end of the world wherein Christ will return as a conquering king claiming his rightful place as the king of kings and the Lord of lords so that the Bible could end with these words and they lived happily ever after. Christianity has everything in it that the world is longing for. But it doesn't stop at a story. Joseph Campbell, a famous secular religious scholar, concluded that Christianity was one among many myths, merely one among many myths. That Christianity was not unique in its stories, but that it was merely one of the world's many myths that tried to understand the meaning of life. So that you could just throw in Christianity with Gilgamesh, with the Babylonian myths, with Zeus, with Kali, with Brahman, with Vishnu. And he was just one of many with Muhammad. He was, according to Joseph Campbell, Christ, or all of these myths, reflected a deep sense of the hero who, according to Campbell, had a thousand faces. We all long for a hero. And Campbell was right. But he didn't go far enough. Christianity, while undoubtedly a myth, in the most technical and strict understanding of the word, has also become fact. In other words, for Lewis, and I believe Lewis is right, Christianity is everything that myth is, with the exception that its stories are not merely teaching truth, but they are stating facts 
that must have been the case. Or there is no salvation. Now, look at your passage. 1 Corinthians 15, 12. Remember that the book of Corinthians is written to a church. And that the people that the apostle is writing to are quote-unquote Christians. Paul says this, Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? Now at Easter, we have our pageants. And hopefully you've gone to a couple Christmas pageants this year. And uh, you see the stories, you see the art. And you see, uh, you know, you see the, the, the great speakers who come out and speak. They're always British for some reason um, because the apostles were British. And um, they were always, they always come out and they speak so glorious. And we watch the story and we cry. And Jesus is hoisted up at the end on a, on a giant strap and pulley system. And he, he shakes on his way up. But it's the story of Christianity. All five acts. And we love it. But if we fail to understand that these stories are real events, our salvation is lost. I want to prove that. If Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? So these are Christians who want the stories but don't want the facts. They go into their classes and say, I'm a Christian, but I'm not a real Christian. I don't believe the Bible's literally true. I don't believe that there was a literal resurrection. Paul says to them a rebuke. He says, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. In other words... These are people who, by the way, I know we think that they were, that, that everyone was running around in those days believing in fairies and believing in ghosts and goblins, but that's not true. These people understood that when you died, you were dead. They understood what death was. In fact, they probably would be better at diagnosing a dead body than you and I would today. Since when our family gets sick and they die, we're not even permitted to go in the room. We'll see him at the funeral. But they knew that that body was dead. By the way, they also knew how babies were made. So the idea that Joseph thought Mary was just a young girl and they had been sleeping around the way modern young people do before marriage is bogus. The reason why Joseph was going to divorce Mary in secret was because they were betrothed and they were living chaste lives. He knew that babies were the, con the consequence of sex. And he knew he hadn't been sleeping with Mary, therefore he thought she had been fooling around. 
These people understood, and they're like us. They don't buy this story that there's a real resurrection. That's just the stories we tell our kids at night. But Paul says, and if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. That means useless. And you are still in your sins. If you can drive by the nativity scenes and say what a great story but it didn't really happen Paul is saying your faith is useless if all the Christmas season is to you is a story of stories and not true historical events your faith is useless. He says, not only that, then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. In other words, it's like my grandmother used to say, I'm not going to live in hell and die and go there. Now, she was a Christian woman, but we understand her point. Her point is, if there is no, I'm not going to live a life in hell. That's what life is. And die and go there. It's going to be one or the other. And for the Christian, we are called, as Christ calls us, to bear a cross. We are called to reflect Jesus in his suffering. By our suffering for his namesake. Jesus said, blessed are you when we are persecuted for his name. We are, never, we are never more like Christ than when the world hates us. But listen to what Paul says. Listen to these three words. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. So when you stand there at that graveside and your loved one is lowered six feet deep and you know that your loved one had faith in Christ Jesus, that they believed that Christianity was the myth that became fact, you can stand there and with great blessed assurance say, I know that that body right there will be raised to incorruptible flesh when Christ returns. How, how do I know that? Because Christ was raised. But that's just a story. No. It, it is a story. But it's the story that became fact. It is so much more. Paul goes on. 
For as by a man came death, now he's tapping into other parts of the myth of Christianity. You mean that you believe there was a real Adam? Yeah. Where else did we come from? You got a better explanation? Oh, uh, yeah. Uh, there was a bowl of mud, lightning struck it, and eventually it got to man. Really? You, you think that's a better explanation? Now, there, the, the good news is you were actually mud until God breathed life into you and made you in his image. Paul taps into the other part of the myth. He says this. He says, there was one man, and through this man came death. Adam fell, and on behalf of all of us, we are now corrupted by sin. But by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each is in his own order. Christ, the first fruits, then it is coming, those who belong to Christ. In other words, you have no confidence that your dead one will raise from the dead if you don't believe that Christ was literally, factually, 2,000 years ago, raised from the dead. Because if you deny that, then there's no resurrection for you either, or your loved ones. You won't see them again. You're still in your sins. Better get to work. Paul says then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom. Here's the conclusion of the myth. The kingdom of God, the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and power. And they lived happily ever after is another way. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. We should still be longing because for us, we're living the myth and it is not over yet. We still wait for a conclusion. We want to see our king come again. What a day that will be when the skies are torn open and angels precede him and the Lamb of God comes as our Savior, our true and living hero. It won't be Spider-Man. It won't be Iron Man. It will not be less than those heroes. It will be so much more. Hebrews 2.17 says, Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. This Christmas season, 
we will go to pageants. We will visit nativities. Some will be still. Others will be live nativities. We will sing songs. We will watch Christmas movies. We'll watch funny Christmas commercials about Kevin McAllister as a grown-up being left home alone. We will attend candlelight services and we'll read the Christmas story together as a family. And I say and God says as well, enjoy. Enjoy. That's why we go. Enjoy the story. We all love story. Enjoy it. But don't stop short. Seeing the nativity as a heartwarming story about a babe in a manger. Stake your life on the fact that that babe in the manger, manger really was and is earth's great hero. He is not less than all of the great heroes of literature. As Lewis said, he is not less than Balder, but he is so much more. The babe in the manger is the story of God's hero. And he is also the reality of our salvation to all who believe on his name. Let's pray. Jesus, help our unbelief. Create in us a sense, Holy Spirit, of awe as we try to understand in a postmodern day where we're told how everything works. But as we try to understand meaning in a life that becomes increasingly more and more meaningless, help us not to lose, help us to recover the wonder of myth in the story, the myth that became fact. To believe once again in a hero who is Jesus Christ. And to trust in him for salvation of sins. Amen.